Thanks, Luke, and the praise team. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 12 and then 14 and 15. We'll take 13 next week, verses 12, 14, and 15 this week. So Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Have you ever been hurt by a family member? I'm probably speaking to a crowd, I would imagine, like the rest of humanity, that at one time or another you've been hurt by a family member. It seems like that family, though they're the closest people to us, and perhaps for that reason have the propensity to hurt us the most. And on, on, on top of all of that, there, there's these, these conflicts seem to be the most difficult to solve. Because inside your family, you're thinking about them as, hey, you're, you're my family. You're not supposed to do those kinds of things. You're supposed to know better than to, to act that way. When I was growing up as a, as a kid, there didn't seem to be one Thanksgiving or Christmas where somebody wasn't talking to somebody else. We'd, I'd ask the question, why, why are we having Christmas here? Why are we doing Thanksgiving here? We never do it here. Well, because she's not talking to him, and we can't go back over there anymore. And, well, that's the reason why you're not having Thanksgiving there. There are some fractures in families that are, are, are caused, not because of some minor issue, but really great, deep, abiding, real significant issues. And they seem to sometimes just go on forever and ever. And no one has a really great solution as to how to get out of it. The one side that was you know, largely the cause of the fracture is not coming to the table. They're never going to ask for forgiveness. They're not wanting to talk it out. And the whole family feels as though they have no choice but to cut this person out. Am I the only one that's ever felt this way? I think most of us have at least one person in our family that's like that. And if you don't, it's you. <laughs> you're, you're, not to, I didn't mean to break it to you, but it's you. Of course, uh, there's fractures of other kinds in relationships that don't have anything to do with family members. It's friends too, longtime friends sometimes even, that end up going their separate ways because something took place. It's some sort of seemingly irreconcilable difference. And the differences seem to be so irre irreconcilable that the, the two people who used to be good friends end up just going their separate ways, never to come back to the table ever again. Now, if you've ever, if you've lived for even just a little bit of time, I think you know what I'm talking about. Odds are you've gone through some difficulties in relationships. This morning, we're going to be talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness is our most essential problem. It's the problem of the human condition. We are in desperate need of forgiveness. And at some point in our lives, we're going to need forgiveness from others. Someone is going to need forgiveness from us. Forgiveness of others is one of the most difficult challenges in the Christian life. I think you ask any preacher, some will tell you that money is the hardest one to preach on. Some will tell you various subjects are, other, are hard to preach on. I think forgiveness is probably one of the most difficult. I think any preacher will tell you after you preach on forgiveness, that's the one you get the most questions about. 
because it's touched all of our lives. Every single one of us has to deal with this issue of friction and forgiveness. So this morning, Jesus is going to deal with it head on. So with that in mind, let's look at our, our text this morning, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 9 to 15, and then we're going to focus on 12, 14, and 15 this morning. He says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, When it comes to thinking about our text this morning, what normally trips us up while Jesus talks about forgiveness is not that his words are confusing. It's not that we look at the text this morning and we say, I'm not really sure what he he means. There are some texts that are difficult to understand. That when we read them, we go, I think he means this. And then once you settle your mind on what it means, then you have some other opinions that are out there that you need to take into consideration and that all sound really good until you have to decide what you feel like he means. That's not the case with this text. When Jesus talks about forgiveness, it isn't confusion over what he says that trips us up. It's his overwhelming clarity that trips us up. When we read it, we know what he's saying. There's no question as to what he's saying. I, I can Right now, I know that we can read that verse and we can just all pack up and leave because we know what he, he means. But what we end up in the end wanting is some sort of escape clause. Some sort of condition. Something that he would give to us. You know, I think my Bible is missing a verse or two. There's got to be, he's gotta, there's just something in here. Where's my get out of forgiveness free card? Right? There's got to be something in there where Jesus kind of says, well, but. And then I'm like, yes, yes. Keep saying. Jesus, keep talking. Surely Jesus wants to put some parameters around this whole feeling of forgiveness, right? I mean, does he really know what that person did to me? Some of us have been looking at verses 12, 14, and 15 since we started the Lord's Prayer and thought, I don't really want to be here that week. I think I might try to take vacation to the beach. If you've, if you've ever thought about forgiveness, like it's, it's really difficult for me to forgive because of a certain situation or because of something they, they did that's just really hard to get over. I have difficulty forgiving this person. Let me give you just a little bit of comfort. Every last one of us have felt that way. Every last, you're not alone. Every single one of us goes through that. Let me give you even more comfort. Every Christian throughout history has gone through that and has felt that difficulty in forgiving someone else. Let me give you an abundance of encouragement. The Apostle Peter himself felt that way. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Be comforted. You're not alone in that feeling of anxiety that builds up inside you when you think about forgiving certain people for certain sins against you. 
there is a difficulty we all face thinking about someone treating us like a doormat. And they just continue to keep walking over us time and time again. And it feels like, well, the reason they're walking over us is because we keep on forgiving them. Maybe I just need to stop all of that. Several months ago, we talked about loving your enemies. And there were questions that I got afterwards. Many questions of people in this very room that have difficulty with this topic. So know that you're not alone. Every single one of us have felt that way. But now let me remove the comfort for just one second. Jesus is unrelenting about your forgiveness of others. He is unrelenting about your forgiveness of others. He accepts no counter-arguments. There are no yeah buts that will make him go, oh, you know what? Well, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Well, of course, you know, in that situation, yeah, that would be okay. It would certainly be. I'd present to you that it's his clarity on the issue of forgiveness that bothered us, bothers us most. So this morning, I want to not only deal with the, Jesus' logic in why he tells us to forgive the way he tells us to forgive. We normally do that as we explain the, the passage. I want to be able to do that and understand his logic that he's tackling here. But then I want to tackle really two, what I see is two of the most common questions that I get when it comes to the issue of forgiveness that I think need to be addressed. And sometimes they serve as, as hurdles that we have to climb over before we can actually get to the point of forgiving someone else. And so I really want for, our out, for the outline this morning to really just simply state what Jesus simply states. So the outline is going to be relatively simple so that we can get to some of those bigger issues that, that we end up having to crawl over. So the first thing that we see at it, it is that we need God's forgiveness. Just very simply put, we need God's forgiveness. Jesus opens with, forgive us our debts. He later says trespasses. And so we, we know what he means in, in the term debts. We know he means sins. Forgive us our, our, our debts, our sins. We need God's forgiveness. He's, at, he's telling us to ask the Lord for forgiveness. So to be straightforward, we all need God's forgiveness. Now, for those of you that grow up, grew up in the Christian church, maybe you grew up Christian, you grew up around kind of the Christianese lingo, this is an obvious statement. We need God's forgiveness. I think we, we, probably the vast majority of people in this room are, are like, yeah, I, I, I know that already. Okay, what's next? But for some that are maybe newer to Christianity or maybe didn't grow up in the church, there seems to be a contradiction in what we're singing about this morning, what we're saying, and what we're telling you to do here, what Jesus is telling us to do. And the question that you might have might sound like this. Well, if, if God has forgiven me of my sins when Jesus died on the cross, if God has forgiven me of my sins, then why do I have to go on asking for forgiveness? Doesn't He already forgive me? Why do I need God's forgiveness if He's already given it to me? Now, I think that's a fair question. I think it's a fair question that needs to be answered. And one I would probably be inclined to ask as well if I was in that situation. So let's answer that question first. The first thing that we have to agree on, I think, before we answer that question, the first thing we have to agree on is that sinful humanity is rightly deserving of the wrath of God. 
Sinful humanity is rightly deserving of the wrath of God. As Christians, we believe, and I think rightly so, that we were created to worship God through close fellowship with Him. And we were charged with being His image bearers on earth and having dominion over the earth. But the Bible tells us that we've sinned and fallen short of that glory. And so I'm going to go through several scriptures along the way that help bring this point out. Jesus tells us in John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Paul tells us in Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He tells us again in Ephesians 2 about our fallen state. He says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And not only has, was that our state, it's the current state of many around the world. The book of Revelation is filled with descriptions of the end of human history where God will remember Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. There are all these depictions throughout scriptures, throughout the scriptures of the relationship between God and humanity as a result of sin. And so we see relatively clearly that sinful humanity is rightly deserving of the wrath of God. But we also have to agree that anyone in Christ has been eternally reconciled to God and forgiven of all sins. Anyone who is in Christ has been eternally reconciled to God through Christ and forgiven of all sins. So just as surely as God's wrath remains stored up for sinful humanity, as Christians, we also believe that Christ, that in Christ we have been spared from that wrath. Paul tells the people of Athens as he's preaching to them in Acts 17.31 that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world. God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world. This is the day of wrath that the Bible anticipates at the end of human history. He has fixed a day on which He will judge sinful humanity. But Paul also tells the church at, first, at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 to wait for Jesus from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So He's fixed a day on which the wrath will come, but wait for Jesus who has delivered us from the wrath to come. So how is it that Jesus saves us from the wrath to come? Well, Paul also tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus, the picture is that Jesus became literally sin for His people. And He took on His own shoulders the sins of humanity so that we, by being in Him, might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8.1 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, that has to mean 
that the wrath to come is not coming for those who place their trust in Jesus Christ. Right? It has to mean that. There is no wrath coming for those who place their trust in Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we believe that on the cross, this Jesus Christ who knew no sin, who was perfect and sinless, deserving of eternal rewards, instead of taking those eternal rewards, climbed up on the cross and there bore the wrath of God, the wrath that He had for His people so that we might not face the wrath to come. So then those who are in Christ could rightly say as Jesus did, except the other way around in John 3.36, the wrath of God does not remain on you. We're no longer enemies of God, but friends. And this is what Paul means when he says we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that anyone who is in Christ has been eternally reconciled to God and forgiven of all sin. But it raises the original question, why then do I need to go on asking forgiveness from God if I've already been granted it? So, well, we know that confession of sin is is not, we're not in confessing sin, we're not asking for something that God hasn't already given to us in forgiveness. Instead, we are agreeing that what God has already done is right. We're agreeing that what God has already done is right. John tells us in 1 John 1, 9-10, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. A confession of sin is not only asking for forgiveness, We know that we have that in Christ. A confession of sin is also coming clean and agreeing with what God has already said is true of you. We're agreeing that that's exactly correct. His assessment of me is exactly right. To make excuses for sin or to say that, well, that's that's really not sin, is is it? I mean, is that really sin? To do that is to turn away from God in our obstinacy and essentially call Him a liar. Because what He has already declared as sin on the cross, you're saying is not sin. You're making Him out to be a liar. He already declared it and He punished Christ for it. Now, understand what's happened in this picture. God hasn't hasn't broken me off from the family. He hasn't broken His relationship with me. He hasn't separated me from the family. Quite the opposite. I have attempted to break it off with him. I'm the one that's moving away. When your child has a temper tantrum at the dinner table, everybody witnesses it. I'm sure that's never happened uh, to anyone. <laughs> when your child has a temper tantrum at the dinner table and you get onto them, maybe you take away their dessert or, or maybe you spank them or whatever it is that you do to punish them, you, you, you kind of basically call them out on it in one way or another. And they get mad and they pout and then they kind of storm off and they go to their room maybe and they're just in there pouting. Have they been cut off from the family? You give away their chair to another kid walking out on the street. Hey, you can come in here. You, we need it. We, we're down one kid. We need it. We need, we need a replacement. Come, sit, come have a seat. In fact, they, they keep their seat at the dinner table. The seat's still there for them. 
while they're off pouting. So in that scenario, let's say they come and they sit back down at the dinner table and they smile at everyone like nothing has happened and they just kind of look at everyone and they say, oh, will you pass the potatoes, please? What do you do as a parent? Do you just pass the potatoes like nothing happened? No, you say like every parent, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Is there something that you need to say to the rest of us? Right? I think everyone has probably used that. Is there something that you need to say to the rest of us? See, there's an expectation, not of the child petitioning the family to, to be a part of the family again. There's an expectation of the child to restore to a right relationship what has just taken place. What has just happened. To agree that they were in the wrong. And they say, yeah, I was wrong. And everybody goes, we know. <laughs> yes, you, you're right, you were. And that still needs to be done. That has to be done. Now the reason that I want to go through all of that, and the reason why I did go through all of that, is because it's the truth of the wrath of God and the forgiveness of Christ has really two audiences that it applies to. First, to the person who is currently not a follower of Jesus Christ, it means that you're outside Christ. Now think about that for a second. The wrath of God being a reality. And you not having that wrath absorbed in Christ means that there is no forgiveness for you. It means that the wrath of God is to come for you. That He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world. And you're going to be a part of it. For you to realize that there, there is no forgiveness in that sense. That there will be a day where you'll close your eyes in death and you'll open them in front of the throne of God. And in front of you will be all of your works laid bare. And God, in order to be called just, will have to punish you for them. And if that sounds daunting to you, God offers you a seat at the table. He offers you a seat at the table of the family as a son or as a daughter. First, you must believe that Jesus died the death that you deserved. He died the death that you deserved and faced the wrath of God that you deserve to face. Secondly, evidence of that belief is joining the family at the table and owning up to sin. sin. And subsequent obedience to God. The second audience that this applies to is for all the rest of us in the room that already believe and already follow Christ. The rest, for the rest of us, brothers and sisters, how many of your sins were in the future when Christ died for them? There are times where we struggle deeply with sin. There are other times where we dive headlong into sin and we somewhat enjoy it. We keep running after it. And then there's this, there's this other time where we want to come back to the Lord and we're thinking to ourselves, but I just don't know if He could possibly forgive me. How could He possibly forgive me? To which the question has to be asked, how many of your sins were in the future when Christ died for them? The answer is all of them. He already knew them. 
He already called them out. He already punished Christ for them. You're not giving to Him any new information. And sometimes you would think that it's hard to believe that God would welcome us back. But the reality of what He's done in Christ is He already knew your sin. Sometimes we don't want to confess them because they're embarrassing. Maybe we don't want to admit that we did them. But the reality is Christ, God already called them sins in Christ. Don't make him out to be a liar. You're in your room pouting. And you need to stop it and come back to the table and receive the forgiveness that he offers. You're not making excuses for it. You're not saying, but, but yeah, but you see what this person did? It kind of forced me into that situation and I sort of, no, you're owning it. I did it. You're not shifting the blame. That's what I did. You're taking responsibility for your own sins. You're owning up to it. And so though you've pushed away from God, you have to understand God's arms never fold. He doesn't deny you coming back to him. I mean, think about the parable of the prodigal son. What is the picture of the father but one who watches down the road and runs to his son who comes back? What's really important for us to realize, and the reason that I want to go through, wanted to go through all of that, is to help us realize how often we cause the fracture in God's family. When I open with that illustration about people that cause fractures in the family, we're all probably, most of us anyway, thinking about somebody else. We're thinking about that person in our family that runs off. They're the prodigal. They run off and they started doing these kinds of things. And man, they, they leave us no choice but to cut them out. But the reason I go through all of that, that we need God's forgiveness, and exactly what's happening in God welcoming us back to the table, is to help us realize that you often are that prodigal. I am that prodigal. That I'm the one that runs. And that ultimately I'm the one that needs God's forgiveness. It is much easier for me to think about that other person. They're the ones that causes, cause the problems. Not me. It's much more difficult for me to turn it back on myself and go, no, I, I often run from God. I often do to God and His family what that member of my family does to our family. That's me. We've been radically forgiven by God, but that brings with it uh, more of the more troublesome aspect of this passage, of this petition. The second point, God expects us to forgive others. Here we have this last phrase in the petition, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. But Jesus doesn't stop there. I think he should. I really want him to just stop there. I don't want him to really explain, but he does. He doesn't explain any of the other petitions in the prayer. He finds the need to explain this one petition. It's almost as if he expects there to be some questions and some rebuttals from what he just prayed. 
Time out. What did you just say? And so he goes ahead and he clarifies in verses 14 and 15. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I really wish he didn't say that. But he did. Now, on the surface, this appears as though our forgiveness from God is entirely contingent upon our forgiveness of others. I don't think that's the exact right way to think about what Jesus is saying here. I mean, if we were to conclude that that, that, that was the case, we'd have some real significant theological problems, I think. I mean, can you imagine someone standing in front of the throne of God, their works laid bare in front of them, and God, let's say he poses the question to them, why should I let you into my heaven? And their response is, well, I've forgiven a lot of people. Can you imagine that response? I don't think that response is going to hold up. And quickly we would get into works righteousness in a hurry. If we started saying, well, in order for God to forgive you, you have to forgive others. And that's exactly the way we should understand it. Um, Do enough forgiving and then finally in the end the Lord will forgive you only if it's enough. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Very simply put, he's saying that the kind of person who has forgiveness from God Not only does he find forgiveness of his own sins, but he radically forgives others. The kind of person that has forgiveness from God radically forgives others. Now, if you recall, back when we went through the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us there, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He tells us, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and so on and so on. And they all get eternal rewards. And all of these characteristics Jesus describes as one gaining eternal life. Everybody's getting eternal life if they look like this, if they do these sorts of things. And, and we, we said, I said back then that what gains them eternal life is not their meekness, is not their poverty of spirit or whatever, but rather in gaining the kingdom of heaven. Meek is what they become. The characteristics, the simultaneous characteristics of one gaining eternal life is also one pursuing meekness. I think the same thought process is evident in all of what Jesus is teaching, and I think it's applied here. When, when one understands himself to be a sinner and truly deserving of eternal punishment, yet, yet having been forgiven by God for all that I've done, that regardless of what sin that was, God reached down to me in Christ, punished Him on my behalf. When one really wraps his mind around that, one thinks about all of the sins that I've committed, things that I know and things that I don't know, when he wraps his mind around all of those things that I've been forgiven of, he, he's radically transformed into a forgiver. How can he help but be forgiving towards others? Jesus illustrates this in a, in a parable later on in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18. It'll be more uncomfortable when we get there, but we're still like three years away from that, so don't worry about it. (laughs) It's the parable of the unforgiving servant, where the master is owed this debt by this servant of like $10 billion, and he forgives him all of the debt. And then that servant turns around, and and his friend owes him $10,000, and he chokes him out. Uh, until he pays him back the debt. Well, when the original master finds out what he's done, he says, look, you're going to be thrown into debtor's prison now because I forgave you all this debt and you turned around and you didn't forgive even just a very simple debt to the person around you. 
Jesus is very clear when one truly repents of his sin. When one comes to true repentance of sin, he forgives other sins. That's true. That's a picture of true repentance is when you forgive others. Uh, the, the transformation that's taking place in the life of a believer is that we begin to emulate God the Father. Paul tells us in Ephesians um, 5, 1-2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, listen to this, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're learning to emulate God's forgiveness. So there is an expectation that if we are children of God, then we imitate Him in many capacities, not least of which is forgiveness. But this is where I think the obstacles come. We know that's true. That I forgive because God forgave me. But typically, too, at least what I hear, the, most, the biggest obstacles, the first is the age-old question of forgive and forget. How can I ever possibly forget what this person has done to me? God, the Bible says, doesn't it, that God forgets our sins? How can, how can I possibly do that? I think this comes from a, a misunderstanding of the real difference between forgetting and not remembering. They sound like the same thing. We often use them synonymously in our language, but in the Bible, forgetting and not remembering are two different things. The Bible tells us in both the Old and New Testament that we're forgiven by God and that He remembers our sins no more. This is one of the clearest doctrines when it comes to our sin and God's forgiveness in Scripture. He throws them as far as the east is from the west. Though we often think of it synonymous with forgetting. And that's not the case. The two are not the same. God cannot forget and be all-knowing at the same time. He cannot forget and be all-knowing at the same time. So, when we say forget, it's really a product of human condition where we just absolutely cannot bring to mind at all, it's just fallen right out of our head, the thing that we're trying to bring to the forefront of our mind. Not remembering, on the other hand, especially when God applies it to Himself, is that the offense is not brought to mind in judgment. It's not as though the fact has fallen out of his head. It's that he will never bring it to mind in your judgment. He is choosing not to remember it. If you can imagine a court case where you're being tried for murder. They've got all the goods on you. They've got DNA. They've got fingerprints. They've got pictures with you at the scene of the crime. They've got every incriminating piece of evidence that you could possibly imagine. It's all yours. You were there. It happened. Then the judge, for some inexplicable reason, says, I'm not admitting or allowing any of that evidence to make its way into this trial. What else do you have? Imagine that for just a second. The judge says, look, all the, all the evidence that the prosecution has, I'm not allowing any of that to weigh into this case. What else have you brought? 
When God is telling us that He will remember our sins no more, it's not as though He's forgotten about any of the facts. He'll use them later for rewards. He hasn't forgotten about any of the facts or the things that we've done. It's not as though the evidence of our sins don't exist. Of course they exist. He's instead choosing not to admit those facts into our case. Now, we would rightfully say, well, if a judge were to really do that, well, that's, well, that's not justice. That's crooked justice. How can a judge possibly do that? Well, in God's case, He's already punished Christ for the crime. He's already hung all the evidence on Christ. So essentially the prosecution is having to present evidence for crimes that you committed that Christ did not die for. And God is saying, I will remember your sins no more. Because there is no charge that anyone can bring against God's elect. Paul says that explicitly in the Scriptures. So with God, it's not as though the facts of our sin don't exist in His mind. It's that those facts are never admitted into your trial. Now, come back to our relationships with individuals that have sinned against us. It is unrealistic to expect that forgiveness of others means that we have to forget what they did. It's unrealistic to expect that. First of all, it's, it's not only impossible in many cases, you're going to remember, but you can't control that. You can't go home and just try to forget where you put your keys. You can't do it with intention. It either happens or it doesn't happen. There are some sins that are committed against us that we can, that we can never forget. Instead, forgiving someone is remembering their sins no more. It's no longer bringing these charges into their court case. When they're on trial before you and you're the judge, jury, and executioner, and you're the prosecuting attorney, it's choosing instead to not remember the mistakes of the past, to not admit those into the court case as evidence anything that you've already forgiven them for. So let's say your spouse does something that really makes you mad. You get really frustrated. I know that never happens in here as well. I'm sure I'm the only one. Your spouse never does anything that makes you mad, right? But No, she does something that makes you mad and you get really, really ticked and you, you, you think about it and, and you're like, you know, she's done this before. I can't tell you how many times. Or He's done this before. I can't tell you how many times. And this is finally the last straw. Look, We've talked about it before. I've forgiven them for all those times in the past. But now, look, this is the 100th time, and I just can't take it anymore. This is the last straw. That's not biblical forgiveness. That's not biblical forgiveness. The previous times, the previous 100 times, don't come to bear in this court case. It's only one. This time comes to bear now. That's the only thing that we're talking about. I'm not weighing the evidence of the past. I'm only thinking about this particular time. We're dealing with this particular issue. The previous times don't come to bear in this case if I've truly forgiven her. Yes, I remember what she did. I remember what he did before. But these don't matter in this case. That is biblical forgiveness. The other question 
that usually keeps us from forgiveness is this one that says, but do I have to forgive if they don't ask? They haven't come to me. They haven't asked me for forgiveness. Do I have to forgive if they don't ask? Well, the way the Bible depicts forgiveness is it's a trial of sorts. That there is a discussion that happens when a person comes and admits their mistake and there's forgiveness and a restoration of the relationship that's offered. So the Bible depicts this sort of, let's just call it a makeshift trial that's happening between you and two people where the offender is standing before you, the judge, jury, executioner, and prosecution attorney. And so in order to pronounce a verdict of forgiveness, there has to kind of be this sort of interchange where the relationship then comes to restoration. You see Jesus tell the disciples in Luke 17, 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now, Jesus isn't saying, well, if, if he doesn't say anything after that, then just, who cares about him? Just write, write him off. Send him away. You don't have to forgive that guy. You can keep holding a grudge. Because technically, no forgiveness can be pronounced where there is no discussion and restoration of the relationship. At the same time, I think our passage this morning, other passages in Scripture, and many others would, would picture the citizen of the kingdom of God being predisposed to forgiveness. So in other words, if somebody were to look at you who had an offense done to him, and the other person has not come to them and asked for forgiveness, they wouldn't be able to tell by your actions that you hadn't already forgiven that person. There's no grudge being held. You're not leaving the table. You're not giving away their seat at the table. There's no turning your back on them as people. Your heart is predisposed towards forgiveness. So there's not a scenario where one of Jesus' disciples is allowed to hold a grudge, to just keep it in, or that they would bring up past grievances that have already been forgiven. There's not a scenario where that's the case. But for one who has truly received forgiveness from the Father, forgiveness of others is expected. Now ask yourself the question, do I really want to be forgiven by God as I have forgiven others? That's literally what Jesus prays here. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But is that what we want to pray? Is that where our hearts are? Lord, forgive me in the same way that I forgive my neighbor. Do I want to pray that? That's daunting when you think about it. Do I want to pray, Lord, forgive me just like I forgave that other person? Where, your, where is your heart when it comes to the forgiveness of sins committed against you? Is it predisposed to forgiveness? Do you want to forgive your neighbor as radically as God has forgiven you? This is the heart change that's taking place. We've talked about the heart change that, that Jesus is moving us towards. If we really are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then it will be reflected even in the heart disposition of our prayers, even in the way our, our hearts are directed in prayer, all being about the hallowing of His name, being about our, His will and His kingdom coming. 
asking Him for daily provisions. He's teaching us to turn our hearts towards God and see Him as the, 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 the be-all and the end-all of life. And then He's coming to this and saying, I want to forgive as radically as God has forgiven me. He's changing our hearts in that capacity. Do we want to pray that? Well, what are the things that are keeping you from doing it? Is it a conversation with somebody else? Move heaven and earth to have that conversation. What's keeping you from forgiveness? Whatever is holding you back from forgiving another person, it's not worth holding on to. This is the heart change that Jesus is driving us towards. Forgiving other people as God has forgiven us. That we would be so overcome with God's forgiveness of us that we would be a community where forgiveness abounds to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know there are issues in this room, strife and struggle with people that are so heinous and so awful that the victim who is in here is having a hard time feeling anything but animosity towards that person. Lord, you know better than anyone how many issues like this exist in our congregation alone. And no matter how many times we read the scriptures, no matter how many times we hear the sermons, no matter how many times we pray prayers, that feeling of animosity towards another person just never seems to go away. And so, Lord, I pray for those individuals. Pray that you would give them relief. Pray that you would take them on a, on a journey that would expose what you have done for them. And how wide you've opened your arms to us. And the links that you've gone through to bring us to the table. I pray that in seeing and savoring Christ and what he's done, that you'll finally give them the relief that they've been longing for. Please allow our prayers, our prayers for forgiveness to be effective because we're not holding anything back from anyone else. Allow us to be the kind of community opens our hearts towards the offenders and loves them in spite of the offense. May we be a forgiving community, both with each other and with people we encounter in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.